Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. I'm uh, one of the co-hosts of the show. Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer are here with me now. Hi, guys. Hey, Evan. Good day, Evan. Who is uh, on the program this week? This week, I'm excited to have Lisa Belkin on the show. I've actually been trying to get Lisa on for some years. She uh, wrote for the New York Times Magazine for a long time. She worked at the New York Times for many, many years. And I loved her magazine stories back in the day. She's done a ton of reporting other places as well. She had this book called Show Me a Hero, which some listeners may know because David Simon turned it into an HBO miniseries. But now she has a new book out, which is called Genealogy of a Murder, Four Generations, Three Families, One Fateful Night. And this book is a kind of epic undertaking. It's like a novel. It's basically... An event happens in the 1960s, a murder, and she traces the family histories of three people that revolve around this murder that were involved in it in some way back to their grandparents to understand how they all arrived at this moment at the same time in the same place. And she really, really is able to weave together this story. So I wanted to talk to her about all the elements of how and why she did that. Holy hell, that is a uh, ambitious project. Indeed. You you read it and you say, I understand why this took nine years. Uh, we are brought to you in partnership with Vox Media. They help us make the show. Thanks to everybody over at Vox. And now here's Evan with Lisa Belkin. Hello, Lisa, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. Hello, Evan. It is great to finally be here. Yes, we were just talking about how I tried to have you on years ago. It didn't work out. And then fate has led us to this moment, you could say. Well, longtime listener um, and and really happy to, to now be talking. <laughs> well, the prompt to finally have you on is that your book is coming out. But first, I want to talk about what is one of my favorite magazine stories ever. I probably think about it more than any magazine story that I've ever read, I would say. 
which is the story you wrote for the New York Times Magazine called The Odds of That. I knew you were going there. <laughs> we, we did not talk in advance. I knew you were going there. And they're connected. That magazine piece and this book are connected. And yes, I love that magazine piece. That may be, I wouldn't say my favorite because you can't pick your favorites among your children, but definitely one of the ones that I am most proud of, that is most memorable, and that comes up the most. So talk to me. What what about it? Well, when I read the book, I really felt like, to me, they were very connected. And I want to hear you first just describe what that story is about. So it started around 9-11, and it was this era of everything suddenly looked threatening. And I was talking to Adam Moss, who was the editor of the Times Magazine at the time, about a tiny little article I had found about two Finnish brothers who were, they bicycled along the same road in Finland, and they died on that road, both hit by trucks within, you know, minutes of each other. And everyone was reading huge conspiracies into this online. And, you know, why were they both killed? And and who killed them? And what did they know? And nothing. They knew nothing. They were two Finnish brothers. And they rode along a really busy highway regularly where there were big trucks. What were the odds of that? Right? That's the title because that's what kept coming up. What were the odds of that? And the odds are often much better than we think. But we see these coincidences in our lives and they loom large. They have huge meaning to us. So I started looking for other coincidences and there were a string of them. I wish I prepared. I would read them all to you. You know, there was a researcher on anthrax. His car was found on a bridge with the motor running and the door open, and but he was missing and what happened. And there was a logical solution to that statistically. And you start collecting these and it kind of was a, a way to look at a moment. We've always, human beings have always been programmed to connect dots in certain ways that are threatening because it's self-protective. If you're in the forest and, you know, you peek out of your cave and you see spots, you are going to make that into a leopard because you need to run. Whether or not it's a leopard, you'll never know. You've run. So we are programmed to find stories and threats in disparate moments, events, facts. And so, yeah, I went down a whole lot of deep rabbit holes and concluded most of the time that there were other explanations. There were the facts you leave out in a story like that because you just focus on the ones that create this conspiracy. And so, yes, so I have been somewhat obsessed with coincidences and what they lead to and what they create and how they craft lives and how our belief in them works since I wrote that piece. And the working title for this book was The Odds of That. I took it from that magazine piece. Yeah, The phrase comes up in the book. It really stopped me when I, mm-hmm. when I hit it in the book. I put it in on purpose because it was the working title of the book. So they are related. So- just to stay on the magazine story for a minute, I mean, the one thing that's amazing about the story is I remember it having such salience at the time because it was post 9-11, the anthrax attacks were this big mystery, but as a piece of magazine journalism, which they usually date like pretty quickly, if you look at it now, it has a whole 
salience that's probably 10 times what it was before. And have you sort of seen that multiply over the years in terms of conspiracy thinking? I get an email a week about that magazine piece, and it came out in 2002. Hmm. And it's people saying whenever someone says this is a conspiracy, and Lord knows they say it very often now, I reread your piece. Mm -hmm. And then I think one of the ways it it really connects to the book is, is also on this personal level where you look at your own life, and there was this line from that original magazine story, a researcher talking about the way that you know, it's like an archer, like shooting an arrow and then drawing a circle around where it lands, like drawing a target around where it lands. And we have this sort of tendency to do that. It's not just conspiratorial thinking. It's sort of like coincidental thinking and making meaning out of our lives through these connections. And is that something that was part of your thinking about, you know, your own life and work prior to the book? The popularity of things like sliding doors or the butterfly effect, we all think about this. If not for this, then that would not have happened. If that had not happened, then it usually ends, I would not be here. Mm -hmm. For me, it's a friend dragged me out on a, a ridiculously cold night and I did not want to go out, but she was setting me up with a guy who didn't show up, but sent a friend instead. And so had I not gone out on that ridiculously cold night, I would not have met my husband and everything that is my life would not exist. To me, that's profound, right? One of my favorite parts of the conspiracy article was researchers pointing out that everyone else's coincidences are boring. Your coincidences are fascinating. And yes, I went and wrote 400 pages about other people's coincidences. <laughs> um, so maybe the question you're asking me is, Lisa, was it utterly self-indulgent of you to write this book? There could be an argument for that, but I tried to bring in a whole lot of history and other people's tales and keep it interesting. But that was the main takeaway was just like your dreams are really boring to other people, but fascinating to you. The coincidences in our own life loom large. They're huge because they actually did shape us. We are not giving them meaning that they don't have. If not for that, then this would not have happened. And that was important in our life, even if it was random. So that's, I think, why we're so taken with them. So when did you first learn the basic facts that constitute the like fundamental event of the book? My mother married a guy and late in life. So it was this like new extra chapter. And um, she met a man named Alvin Tarloff and... I went to visit them. They were fairly newly married. He did not know me well. And my previous book, Show Me a Hero, was about they just got greenlit to become the HBO miniseries that it later became. So he was being a good new stepdad, and he read that book. And there was something in Show Me a Hero that he said reminded him of a story. And this very erudite, slow-speaking man proceeded to tell me a story of when he was a young doctor, 30 years old, stationed at the Stateville Penitentiary, a maximum security prison in Chicago, and he was running malaria drug trials on prisoners. He was doing something that, you know, we were already starting in controversial territory that he saw as patriotic and important for science. He was finding a cure, a prophylactic for malaria, which was just decimating U.S. troops. 
And so he was experimenting on prisoners and also training them to be lab technicians, among other things, for when they got out. And he met one who was very like him. They were both brilliant, frankly. They were both autodidacts. They sat in this lab in the Stateville Penitentiary, and they talked about art and science and literature. And then one went back to his cell, and the other went home to his wife and kids. And the prisoner asked Al for help getting parole, and Al gave help and thought he was doing the right thing. And for a lot of reasons that take a lot of pages, things went terribly wrong. And this prisoner, when released, ended up shooting a police officer in Stamford, Connecticut in 1960. That was the story that Al told, along with the effect on his own life and his his doubts and, you know, should he have done this? And if he had not done this, then this would not have happened. And I looked at him after 45 minutes of him talking. I just gave you the short version. <laughs> and he, I said, you know I have to write about this, don't you? And he said, well, if you must. And that was nine years ago. And the story just expanded beyond just that tale. And I became fascinated, among other things, with these three men whose lives collided that night because of a series of events that you could argue go back to their great-grandparents. And so I went back to their great-grandparents. And it's a look at the all of it, all the things that have to happen for all the other things to happen. And it became this book. And when you say, when you looked at him and said, you know, I have to write about this, why? Why did you believe that in that moment? Because from the start... I was taken with these three men. They were all the same age. They were shaped by all the same historic events as generations are. And they all came, or their grandparents and great-grandparents came for the same reasons, the very, you know, American reason we've all grown up on to make life better for their, their children and grandchildren. And yet they all have the same starting line. They all had the same cultural and historical influences. So how did one become the cop, one become the killer, and one become my stepfather, the doctor, who inadvertently set this shooting into motion? And that was the point from the day I heard it, and it's still the point of the book. And did you immediately, you said you wanted to look back, starting with their grandparents, but when you're sort of taking the story and you decide, you know what, I want to dissect what led these three people to this moment, you could start 300 years back, or you could start with their parents, or you could start, you know, when they were born. So how did you settle on this, like, pretty maximalist and challenging <laughs> approach? Well, I started by checking his facts, right? He told me a story, and I wanted to know whether the story was true. He told it to me in 2014. It happened in 1960. I don't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. So I started with his facts and every checkable fact was right. It's impressive. You know, the where, the way, and, you know, and God bless local journalists because back then there were more of them and they covered smaller territories. And so, you know, he told me that his grandfather had died in a train crash. And I went and found the local news coverage about the train crash that told me what seat 
Max Tarleff was sitting in and that he had still had his head on his raincoat that he had been using as a pillow because that was how things were covered back then. So I, I basically looked at the basic facts of his life, starting with this event, and I found the news coverage of the shooting and realized how huge it was for Stanford. It was the first police officer killed in the line of duty in the history of Stanford. It was before 9-11, but it sort of predated the the entire city comes together. They all donated money. There were canisters in every business. There were the equivalent of police officers on every corner. Remember the boots that people were shoving money in after 9-11? Well, that happened in 1960 in Stanford. It was huge. So the first thing I did was make sure this really happened the way Al remembered. And then I never decided to go back to 1880. I just sort of kept creeping backwards. And there were really good stories as I crept backwards. And not only were they really good stories, on this sort of mental crime board, you know, murder board, like you see in the movies where the crazy person connects all the threads and the pieces of yarn. Well, yeah, I was the crazy person. And there were actual connections between these great stories and what eventually happened in 1960. So if there hadn't been that train crash in 1906, you could argue that the pieces that led to the murder of the cop would not have been in place. Mm -hmm. And that's because one part failed on a train in 1906, and all the things that happened next worked to make Alvin Tarloff a doctor, which meant that he was at the Stateville Penitentiary, which meant he met Joseph DeSalvo and worked to get him parole, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it wasn't just that they were fascinating stories, which I think they were, but it was that, oh, wow, all of this happened and none of the people it eventually happened to knew anything about it, which is true of all of us. We could write the book about you and me, right? I'm hoping there wouldn't be a murder, but we could trace how you and I ended up sitting right here. And there would be all sorts of things in our lives that shaped us. And we don't know they happened. And as you were researching and finding these stories, I mean, then the story also connects up with the Nuremberg trials. And there's a whole aspect of like experimenting on prisoners and the history of parole and like why parole even happens. Like it connects up with these larger issues. And so do you think wow, I'm incredibly lucky that I've stumbled into this particular story that connects in all these ways to all these amazing stories from the past? Or did you think this would also be true of anyone? I was pleased that in this particular exploration of this particular past, there were really cool stories. I don't think there were ones that are that interesting in mine. So yes, I think it was lucky. I didn't experience it as luck. It, and this is going to be a little woo-woo. But I really felt like these people had been sitting there for 100 years saying, well, it took you long enough, because everything just fit together in such, I didn't have to manipulate anything. I didn't feel like I had to force anything. They were just there like, well, yeah, we're part of this tale. So here, here's the next chapter. So yeah, I think this particular shooting of this particular cop was involved three people who had particularly interesting pasts. So was that luck? Sure. Every story we tell, there's some amount of luck. 
but I don't know. It's just like they were kind of sitting in these archives, like we're waiting for someone to come and let us out. So I did. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listen to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. There are so many threads here. How did you both keep track of it all and also decide where to stop, which routes not to go down? I was supposed to stop. Oh, dear. <laughs> um, yeah. It's an ambitious book. It asks a lot of a reader. I hope it makes it worth it. But the first draft, I don't know if I should admit this, the first draft was 70,000 words longer than the book book you have, because that had everything. I looked at it in a way as the director's cut. It's everything I know, and it was for the families, right? One of them was mine, right? One of them I knew going in. But then I came to know the cop's children really well. And I I don't you can't see it, but right over my shoulder is a picture of David Troy, who was there the entire time I sat here and wrote the book, because there really was a feeling of, wait, this is their story. They didn't know my stepfather existed until I sent an instant message to them on Facebook one night. And yet my stepfather changed their lives in definite and dramatic ways. So it's their story. And so the first draft was really, hey, I found out all this information. I wrote it all down. And here, I give it to you. Then we had to make it into a book. Mm -hmm. And so then the editing started. And it was traumatizing. You don't cut 70,000 words that you've written without a whole lot of pain. But I got the very good advice from my editor, that there are things in there that everyone knows, right, that are in other books that I learned because I read history. And then there are things that are this story. So, all right, I need to now prune this down to this story. And believe it or not, this is the streamlined version. <laughs> well, I love a maximalist story. So it was, I felt like it was written just for me. But I was interested in, did you have deliberate techniques 
to try to keep readers oriented in different yes sections. Like con- I thought I noticed some, but I wonder if they were conscious techniques or not. I was aware that I there were a lot of people. First thing was it's a nonfiction book. I am probably overly obsessed with making sure that I can prove it that it's not just me being creative. And yet I had five main characters named Charles, the fathers of all three of these people who ended up the cop, the killer, and my stepdad, all their fathers are named Charles. Many of their mothers are named Rose, their wives too. There are several Joes. I had to change names. So that was one of the first things I did because you can't write this book if you don't change some of the names. We decided very early there has to be a family tree. And it's one that people are going to use. You can't just, and it maybe makes it a better book for holding in person than reading on a Kindle. And I like reading on a Kindle. So I worried about that. But that was your guide. Just stick to my family tree. I'm helping you here. Take my lead. And then I did try to remind you periodically, if you haven't met this person for a while, that there are little capsule reminders. There are, I did rely a little on traits, the little shorthand, Razel Tarloff was tough. I tell you nine million times Razel Tarloff was tough, but she was. And it's just sort of a touchstone. It's like, yes, remember you read that several chapters ago? Here you go again. I'm trying to help you here because it's a complicated story. What did you notice? What really helped me was referring to someone else's story really briefly, almost like a parenthetical in one story. So let's say you're focused on one of the Tarloffs and you kind of, they do something that is a bit parallel to one of the other stories and it gets referenced. Like it's similar to what this person did in this other story. And it just kind of keeps you comparing the two, which I found to be helpful. Right. There's one line in there that says at a time that David Troy was learning to repair cars and Al Tarloff was making a business out of Simonizing cars. Joseph DeSalvo was stealing them. Exactly. And those were, yes, to help you keep track, but also because my main characters don't meet for a while and their lives are parallel. And that's the point. So whenever I could point out the parallels that came in handy from a writing point of view. The McCarthy era, for instance. I have two characters profoundly affected by McCarthy, but they don't know each other. They're not in the same place. Mm -hmm. So we interspersed the sections so that it was clear that one was going through this in New York, one was going through it at college in Detroit. But the larger point was this entire generation was going through this, and there were effects on this entire generation. So yes, I was always very aware that there are a lot of people and I need to help a reader because they haven't spent nine years getting to know them. Well, one of the things that I most appreciated about the book was I feel like you often read these very detailed accounts of like quote unquote extraordinary people and you don't read the kind of like level of same detail about, again, like in quotes, ordinary people. And one of the things the book does is it delves into the lives of those people. And number one shows that they are extraordinary in their own ways, everyone is, but also presents them in the same level 
in many cases as the people that would be that would stand out but it it did make me wonder how did you get that level of detail like a person who's viewed as extraordinary has a bigger archive and has been written about or diaries and things that people have preserved how did you manage to get that level of detail about such a wide range of people this couldn't have been done a number of years ago now you can sit in your pajamas and learn a whole lot about people so I know more about some than others because some left more of a trail than others. I had living people in some of the families to talk to and tell me stories. Some it was just archives. So my stepdad was there to tell me family stories, as were his children to tell me ones they remembered and his siblings who lived through a lot of it with him. The police officer's family. He had three children when he died. And the oldest was four and the youngest was six months old. They could not tell me anything directly, but they really wanted answers. They wanted their father back, which is what they said after I gave them that director's cut is, you know, thank you for giving me my father back. And so they introduced me to everyone on the planet. And you know, and they had news clippings and they had papers and they had documents. So, you know, documents talk. They really can tell you things beyond just what's on the page. So a lot of it was that. And then there was, you know, my criminal who died young, whose only brother died the day he committed this murder, which is a whole other, you know, talk about coincidence. And his parents died within a year of this shooting, probably not coincidental. They were destroyed by it. So there are no stories. All we are are the stories we leave behind. We don't exist if there are no memories or stories about us. But what I did have is his many, many years of incarceration. And they talked to him a lot, all the sociologists and, you know, and psychiatrists and parole boards And so it took six years of FOIA requesting, but I got his prison file. I could not get his juvenile record, um, no matter how I tried from the state of Illinois, but it was often referred to in his adult record. And so I know at least how he described his own life, which was somewhat self-serving to a parole board, to a prison sociologist. Um, it's very important that it was the prison sociologist because the state of Illinois kept saying, but this is privileged medical information. And I said, there was no doctor there. It can't be medical information if there was no doctor there. There's a big paper trail that we leave. And Lord knows we leave much more of one now. But even back then, one little fact at a time, and then I used all of them as well as I could to paint a picture. You wrote this thing in the book, which I actually wrote down because I really loved it, which was there are the facts and then there are the truths of our lives and the distances between the two. We are built in part from the stories we're told, the memories we carry. Even when those are distortions or illusions, they can also be real. And it was in a part about how a family had different variations of a story of their descendant coming over to America And did you find yourself puncturing distortions or illusions that people had about their families? Oh, yes. I found it fascinating, but I was also very aware that 
it was hard to receive. So as a writer, it was fascinating to see the role of memory. And the example you use, the chapter begins, Razel Tarloff was tough. Um, She was so tough that her family told the story over and over again about how she arrived in the United States with her young son, who was a year old, and she was told that she could leave the ship, but she had to leave her son behind. And so she sat down and she announced she wasn't leaving and she hid the kid under her coat as if you couldn't see him. And they had to call the captain who finally kind of exasperated because he had places to be, let her off the ship. And so look, look at this tough lady who wouldn't leave her. Then I started hearing the story over and over again from different descendants who were positive that this was the story that their parents told them. And in one version, the ship was burning and she wouldn't leave the kid. And another one, she jumped off and swam to shore. But the end result of all of this was Razel Tarloff was tough. And she was clearly experienced as such a tough woman that people could believe that she did these things. And her toughness created the life that her children then had that they passed on to their children. And without her and this demeanor and this approach to life, you know, she lost her husband early and he left her with 10 children to raise and she did it. So yes, so that was an example of, no, your family story isn't exactly true. Then there was the, oh, here are all our family records and Grandma and Grandpa got married in 1919. I said, cool, Um, I'm going to find their marriage certificate because that's what I do. I find the documents behind the dates. There was no marriage certificate for Grandma and Grandpa in 1919 in Stamford, Connecticut, where I knew they were both very religious and very active members of the church, in the Catholic Church in Stamford, Connecticut. And eventually, I found their marriage certificate, but they didn't get married in Stamford. They got married in Manhattan in 1920, four months before their first daughter's birth certificate. So you've just learned a lot about this woman of great faith who was very suspicious of many of the daughters-in-law who entered her life because they were trying to somehow take advantage of her sons. And it hurt her grandchildren. It hurt the children of that firstborn child. And I'm still not sure I handled that entirely right, except I teach my journalism students that if you decide the story is worthy, if you decide a story has a reason for being told, then your obligation is to the story. And I deemed this one worthy. This said a lot about women in 1920 and and their lives and how they could be upended by things not in their control and societal norms. And so, yes, so I included it. That leads me to wonder, I mean, you mentioned um, Show Me a Hero, which you wrote. When did that book come out? book came out in 99. Miniseries came out in 2016. And it's a different kind of book, but just reading this book, it felt like you were marshalling a lot of skills. Maybe that's because partly because I'm so hooked on the odds of that as a magazine story, but just like bring to bear a whole sort of like career worth of skills onto this issue of like writing this 
this epic version of these ordinary people's lives and how they came together in this extraordinary event. The question I'm wondering about is, do you feel like you could have written this book, let's say, when you started out in your career? When you started the question, I was preparing the answer that said, I could not have written this book until now. You know, I like to think we get better at stuff as we do it. So I've had a lot of years to get better at it. I think that the perspective I have now as, you know, a 60-year-old looking back at my life is very different than the perspective I had as a 30-something looking ahead, which is when I started writing books. So yeah, I think that I see the world differently. And it's a way of seeing the world that you don't get until you've put in a whole lot of miles. How did you start out in journalism? Gravitational pull. It was the thing I did in high school. So that got me into college. And then I kind of did it in at the school newspaper in college. So that got me summer internships. And then I ended up with an internship. It was supposed to last a year. I was warned it was just a year answering phones for Hedrick Smith at the New York Times. And he hired a clerk. It was back when there was money to hire clerks for reporters. So I answered the phone in the Washington Bureau for a year. And that got me the right to answer the phone at the Metro desk. And that was back when you could elbow your way into a reporter's position. So I was very bad at answering the phone. <laughs> Why? What made you bad? Well, I wanted to be writing stories in my spare time. And that was the deal, right? You were a clerk, you made no money, and you had no status, but you could write unbylined, special to the New York Times. That's what we were, not our name, because we were not on staff. We could write unbylined stories and try and convince the higher-ups that we should become reporters. I mean, the people who... I did this with our, you know, Nick Kristoff and David Sanger and Susan Shearer. I mean, this whole cohort of writers who started essentially in the same way. And I convinced them, I, but part of it, I think, was to get me off the Metro desk because I would just sort of hang up on people because I was in the middle of writing a story. I was introduced once by an editor as, this is Lisa Belkin. She's the worst clerk the Metro desk ever had. So maybe it worked. But yeah, so they made me a reporter. And then a series of coincidences and luck, I ended up assigning myself to the Houston Bureau because I met a guy and he was off to do his residency in Houston. And it was just at the time that baby Jessica fell down a well. Mm. And so I ended up covering that. And they said, I quit the Times to do it, to follow him. and But I freelanced. And so after a series of front page baby Jessica stories, they said, you, you want to come back? <laughs> You're not bad at this. So, you know, then I ended up realizing the thing I liked most was magazine pieces. And that was sort of my place. And I became a more or less a New York Times magazine writer for 20 years. I think the proper next question that I should ask is, now, Hedrick Smith, like, what was his background that led him to the moment where he... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I could give you an answer, but um, yeah, but that is what's interesting, right? Isn't that interesting that he was in a position to, you know, demand a clerk? And if he hadn't been, then who knows where I'd be? <laughs> Probably in law school. I applied to law school, but then I got that job. And so then I took a year's leave from law school and I just never went. Another uh, happenstance 
situation the odds combined of that. with what yeah. what are the odds <laughs> of that yes well then in a broader sense you've obviously seen all of the change in the journalism industry over that time how have you managed to sort of like navigate that over the years i feel very lucky that i was in it when i was i am very worried about the journalists who I'm training. I teach at Columbia Journalism School. I have a network of young reporters who I feel responsible for. And I'm not entirely sure what to tell them. I think there will always be journalism in that there will always be a need for people who know how to find stuff, learn more about it, and then tell someone else about it. You know, that is what democracy needs. I fervently believe that. I don't think that's being grandiose or self-promoting as journalists. I don't know what form that'll take. All I can do now is teach them the basics, the foundational fundamentals that I've learned along the way, and they have to use those and figure out how to adapt them to new tools. But the answer to what comes next, I have no idea. And it terrifies me and I'm doing the little bit I can to give them whatever, you know, arsenal they're going to need. And how does it feel in this moment? I mean, you've spent nine years sort of immersed in these lives to be wrapped up in that and now emerge with the book in the world. Like, how does that transition? So there's an end of the story that I didn't expect. Um, My stepfather, who started the whole thing, is as we speak on hospice. And it was both long in coming and very sudden. His memory, which had been, right, I started by saying the first thing I did was check his memory and boy, every checkable fact checked out. And then over the years, as I was writing, that became less and less true. And he he actually told me at one point, write faster, I want to be here. (laughs) And I didn't write fast enough. He did read the galleys. And I think he experienced it as much as learning about his own life as it was checking how I did with it. And then COVID got him and he is now on hospice. So I am in the odd position of promoting a book about a man I adore and having the main character exiting stage left. I thought about canceling all of this right? It seemed inappropriate. And I decided that he handed me his story. He said, go tell this. And so I'm telling it, but that's becoming something I certainly didn't expect to be part of this journey. Maybe I should have. He's 93 years old, but I didn't. And so it's very much become me almost gratefully telling the world about him. And I mean, maybe it's too soon to ask this, but does it change the way you kind of view what you've done in terms of preserving something that would be lost? The dedication says, it's dedicated to Al Tarloff, and it says, thank you for entrusting me with your memories. Not trusting, which he did, but entrusting, right? Here, this is yours now. Keep it. Keep it safe. So I felt that responsibility to all the families. Uh, The least I have to say was probably Al because he was sort of the most present and the one I maybe took for granted a bit because he was mine. 
right? I didn't, but now it's front and center. So yes, I feel, what are we, if not our stories? If no one remembers us, if there are no tales, then who are we? So that's now become an additional part of this book. And part of the, to go back to the odds of that, the story, part of that story is revealing to the reader, like how large the world is in the sense that if weird things happen, they almost always are statistically, you know, probable because the world is so large, but then the world is also so small. So if you get a certain number of people in a room together, they're very likely to share a birthday, something that we find to be a huge coincidence. And in this book, have you found that the book has made you feel that the world is large or that the world is small? Interesting question. Um, I think each of our worlds are small and very intimate. And every once in a while, we look up and realize that we are part of one that's huge. So, both. Well, Lisa, thanks for coming on the show. It was great talking to you, Evan. That's it for this week's show. Thanks to Lisa Belkin for coming on this week. Her book is called Genealogy of a Murder. It is out now. You can buy it now. Thanks to our editor this week, Susan Peterson. Our show notes were from Megan Valley. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. I'm Evan Ratliff. Thank you for listening. We will see you next week. Support for Long Form this week came from listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.